You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Saturday, October 11th of 1941 was a typical day in the home of 54-year-old John Kometz and his family. They lived at 4549 East 3rd Street in Los Angeles, California. Returning from church around 1 p.m. that afternoon, his son, 16-year-old Raymond, he grabbed the mail and handed it off to his 13-year-old sister Lola, who in turn gave it to Dad. Contained in that day's delivery was a small package that had come from the Herb Specialty Company at 1436 North Wilcox Avenue in Hollywood. Later in the afternoon, while eating their midday dinner, Mr. Kometz opened the package and found that it contained a small white box with orange sides. That small box contained 12 capsules, although there were compartments for a total of 15. A letter that was included stated, Quote, Dear friend, we are selecting a limited number of men in various localities in and about Los Angeles who have reached the age of 40 or more whom we believe without any hesitancy need helpful health. This help is coming to you free of charge through the use of vitalizing vitamin vigor. Please read this entire letter and then let these vitalizing vitamins put spring in your step. Now, there was much more to the letter, but you know, you get the general idea. I should mention that the letter was signed Dr. W. W. McElroy, Manager. There was also a small typewritten note contained within the capsule box that stated, quote, Follow directions closely. Two dark capsules at bedtime, one light capsule before breakfast daily. He didn't think much about the unusual delivery, and he set the contents of the package on a dresser in his bedroom. John's second wife of just two months, that's 33-year-old Esther Dockman, had been away visiting friends Oscar and Eva Albertson for the weekend. All were devout members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and Esther had boarded with the couple on and off over the years. While they certainly weren't blood relatives, Esther often referred to the couple as her aunt and uncle. The Albertsons drove Esther home around 7 p.m. the next day to find that John had stepped out for a few minutes. So Lola showed her new mom and Mrs. Albertson the unusual package that her dad had received. Mrs. Kometz then set the package back on the dresser, and when Mr. Kometz returned home a few minutes later, they chatted with the Albertsons for a short period of time, and then they left for the evening. As Esther and John retired to their bedroom for the night, the conversation turned to the Vigor Pills and its accompanying letter. The couple joked a bit about it, and you know, they figured there'd be no harm done in trying them. So John went into the kitchen to take two pills with water. 
He immediately returned to the bedroom, claiming that the pills were making him dizzy. Suddenly, finding it hard to breathe, he fell back on the bed and started frothing at the mouth. Dr. Vernon Ingle was immediately called and John's stomach pumped. Yet through it all, Esther remained incredibly calm. While artificial respiration was being administered, Mrs. Kometz made the puzzling comment, quote, Do you think he's dead yet? At 10.35 p.m., he was officially confirmed to be so. An investigation started immediately. The patrolman on the scene, Edward M. Crum, took the letter that accompanied the pills from Mrs. Kometz and he placed it under his hat, which was sitting atop the piano. Yet a short time later, he found it back in her possession. Analysis of John Kometz's vital organs determined that he had swallowed a lethal dose of cyanide. According to court documents, quote, about half the amount contained in one of the capsules would be sufficient to kill an average 150-pound man in about 30 minutes. So can you give a guess as to who the leading suspect in the murder was? Esther Kermetz would have been my guess, but that's not who the police arrested. Instead, they arrested her close friend Oscar Albertson. Now, as an elder in his church, the 43-year-old Albertson did not seem to fit the mold of being a murderer. Without getting too detailed, let me present you with the evidence that the prosecutors had against him so you can act as a juror and decide his guilt or innocence. It was the printed materials that accompanied the vigor pills that initially led investigators to suspect Albertson of the crime. You know, today we think nothing of printing out brochures, letters, and whatever directly from our computers, but back then you had to go to a professional. On September 22nd of 1941, an unknown man asked a printer in Santa Monica to run off 1,000 copies of letterhead with the name The Herb Specialty Company imprinted at the top. In court, the printer identified the letterhead included with those cyanide pills to have been his work. But when asked to positively ID Albertson as the man who had placed the order, he could not do so with certainty. Quote, he resembles a person I have seen somewhere, but I would not say where. Okay, so that's not a very convincing start. But the printer did say that he had referred the man to another establishment called the Letter Shop to have the text of the letter typed up. The stenographer there said that she had typed the letter on September 24th, and in court she testified that the man who made the request was indeed Oscar Albertson. She also said that he returned one week later to have 500 copies of the letter run off. Yet, on cross-examination, she admitted that when she was first asked by investigators to attend Kometz's funeral to help identify the suspect, she did choose Albertson, but, quote, the impression I had was one rather of having seen the man before, but not necessarily in the letter shop. The owner of the letter shop, that's a Mrs. Harris, also positively identified Albertson in court, but once again she admitted that she hadn't been so certain when she was first asked to do so at the Comet's funeral. A public stenographer named Mrs. Souther was also called as a witness. She identified Oscar Albertson as the man who had given her a penciled list of names and addresses on October 9th, and they were to be typed on envelopes. She clearly remembered Kometz as being one of the 21 names that she was asked to type, mainly due to its unusual spelling, you know, K-M-E-T-Z. Another customer in Mrs. Souther's office testified that Albertson had a strong resemblance to the man, 
but once again said, quote, I can't tell you I'm absolutely sure because truly I am not absolutely sure. <laughs> Clearly not a good day in court for eyewitnesses. Only one in four could positively identify Albertson with certainty. Experts were, however, able to identify Mrs. Souther's typewriter as the one that had produced the envelope that John Kometz had received in the mail. A handwriting expert was able to conclude that the signature Dr. W. W. McElroy on the letter, when compared to the handwriting samples obtained from Albertson, were probably made by the same person. Another piece of incriminating evidence was the box that Kometz received contained the poisonous capsules. Investigators established that just prior to her marriage to Mr. Kometz, Esther had stayed with the Albertsons and had requested that Oscar purchase a box of vitamin A capsules for her at a local drugstore. He had purchased Provite brand, which she left behind at the Albertsons. Investigators were able to show that the box used in the mailing to Kometz was also made from a modified box of Provite. A handwriting expert, and I have no idea why you'd use a handwriting expert for this, the handwriting expert testified that the holes in the tray of both boxes were of the same size with the same unequal spacing between them. Even more damaging was that the glue used to modify the box was mucilage. That's not very common today, but just about everyone had a bottle of it back then. Even I had a bottle years ago. Investigators found a bottle of it at the Albertson home you know, which by itself doesn't prove much, but on its rubber tip were traces of orange color. The same orange color found on the vitamin A box. Detectives also found a letter in a drawer at the Albertsons that Esther had written to her future husband, ending their relationship. This one sentence, quote, I don't feel the least bit affectionate toward you, summarizes the overall tone of the letter. Ultimately, she felt that the letter was too harsh and it was never mailed. Yet Esther still went on and married John Kometz. This is certainly not more evidence against Oscar Albertson, but it certainly suggests that Esther married a man that she may not have loved. And now for the whopper piece of evidence, which I've purposely left for last. You see, there had been an odd incident that occurred on August 30th of 1941. That was just 12 days after the Kometzes were married. So imagine this, it's around 10.20 p.m. and they had just arrived home from a visit with Esther's mom. They noticed an older model car parked around the corner from their home that Mrs. Kometz later commented, quote, looked like the car that my uncle drove, referring to her pseudo-uncle, Oscar Albertson. After helping his wife and daughter in with the groceries, John went back outside to park the car in the garage. That's when a muffled cry was heard. So Esther and Lola rushed out onto the front porch to find that Mr. Kometz had been physically attacked with a pickaxe handle in the vacant lot next door. It was nothing super serious, but he was bruised and cut. They then witnessed the car that had been parked around the corner drive off. Right around the same time, a patrolman saw a car driving at 45 miles per hour, that's 72 kilometers per hour. The car drove right through a stop sign. He gave chase, but found the car abandoned, which was registered to Mrs. Albertson, about a mile or 1.6 kilometers away. Inside the abandoned car, the officer found Mr. Albertson's clothing neatly folded on the back seat, his wallet, glasses, and a postcard. 
A few hours later, police found Oscar Albertson about 3 miles or 4.8 kilometers from the abandoned car. He was on the ground wearing only his underwear. He said that he received a postcard in the mail from a guy named George Crocker who told him of a blacksmith job opening. Unemployed and desperate for a job, Albertson agreed to meet him at the nearby Owl drugstore, but Crocker never showed up. Later in the evening, another man asked if he was Oscar Albertson and said that Crocker was at work at the local Sears store. The two men drove to meet Crocker, but instead a third man, a different man, got in the car with them. One of the men pulled out a bottle of alcohol and asked Albertson to take a drink, which he politely refused. Being a religious man, he never drank, but then he felt something against his back. He assumed it was a gun, and he reluctantly swallowed the booze. The next thing you know, Oscar Albertson was knocked out by whatever they laced that drink with, and he awoke in just his undies right where the police found him. Does that story sound a little odd to you? It certainly did to the police, and they didn't believe it for a second. It wasn't until a couple of days later when the Kometzes and the Albertsons got together that they exchanged stories and realized that they were both victims of the same assailants. That's when they all went to the police, but they still did not buy Albertson's story. So now that you've heard all the evidence, do you think that Oscar Albertson was John Kometz's murderer? Oscar Albertson's trial for the murder of John Kometz began on April 13th of 1942. In addition to all the evidence that you just heard, the prosecution attempted to show that Albertson had planned the crime for months because he was in love with Mrs. Kometz. But this was pure speculation and no evidence was ever discovered showing there had been an improper relationship between the two. No other motive for the murder was ever established. The Albertsons and the Kometzes appeared to get along very well. There was no evidence that Oscar Albertson had purchased cyanide anywhere or even that he had mailed the package to John Kometz. Both couples were on about an equal financial footing, so money couldn't have been the motive. On May 30th of 1942, Albertson's trial ended in a hung jury. They voted 10-2 to 2 for conviction. Those two dissenting jurors felt that the evidence was just, you know, too circumstantial. A second trial was immediately scheduled, and Oscar Albertson was found guilty on August 6th. California law at the time mandated the death penalty for his crime, and he was sentenced to death in the gas chamber using, now get this, cyanide gas. The case was automatically appealed, and on January 19th of 1944, the state Supreme Court handed down a 4-3 decision overturning the conviction. The decision was reversed on insufficient evidence, basically because it was all circumstantial evidence. The district attorney opted not to retry the case, and Albertson was released on June 14th of 1944, 965 days after his arrest. So who did it? Was it Oscar Albertson after all? Did Mrs. Kometz have such a distaste for her husband that she wanted him bumped off, you know, possibly with the help of Mr. Albertson? Did John Kometz commit you know, suicide, possibly, or did someone else do it? I'm guessing most likely we'll never know. Oscar Albertson was 84 years old when he died on April 18th of 1983. His wife Eva had died only a few years after his release from prison on October 29th of 1949. 
Mrs. Kometz had magically disappeared just prior to the second trial, probably so she wouldn't have to testify, and I was unable to find out what happened to her after that. There's just no mention anywhere. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For breathless moments. For your breathless moments. Two denties. The gum with breathtaking flavor. Dentine tastes so good. Dentine freshens your breath. Dentine helps keep your teeth sparkling clean and white. Dentine. The gum with breathtaking flavor. Before you go out and always after eating, drinking, smoking, refresh your breath with dentine. You'll love dentine chewing gum, for dentine has a wonderful tingling, nippy flavor that lingers on and on. It's delicious. And remember, dentine helps keep your teeth white, too. Keep dentine handy. You'll enjoy refreshing your breath when you chew dentine. So, for breathless moments, for your breathless moments, chew dentine, the gum with breathtaking flavor. That commercial for Dentine is from the March 13, 1953 broadcast of Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons. This particular episode was titled Silver Candlestick Murder Case. That detective series ran on radio from October 12th of 1937 through April 19th of 1955. Now, Dentine chewing gum has been around probably much longer than you thought. It was formulated way back in 1899 by New York City druggist Franklin V. Canning. The name was an amalgamation of the words dental and hygiene. Originally cinnamon-flavored, I was able to find an ad from 1905 that claimed, quote, the gum that cleans teeth. And how about a 1907 poem from the Oxnard Courier? There is a gum that is called dentine. It makes the teeth mighty clean. At Peacock's at five, and all the chewers alive think it's the best they've ever seen. At five cents for a pack back then, which would be about a buck twenty-five today, it sounded like a great product. That was if you ignored the fact that it contained that great tooth-decaying-promoting ingredient, sugar. From what I can deduce from the ads in the archives, it looks like dentine went sugarless in the early part of 1975. There's not a single ad before that that mentions the word sugarless, although they could have made the change earlier and just not have promoted it. In other news, on March 7th of 1922, it's reported that Rafaelo Diaz, who was a tenor for the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, had just completed performing at a benefit for handicapped children at the Commodore Ballroom. 
A group of young, attractive women gathered around him and someone commented about his great complexion. He said it was from Texas and then Miss Mary McCormick commented that she was also from Texas, so Diaz gave her a kiss. Suddenly, all the other women were claiming that they were also from Texas, so Diaz proceeded to kiss each of them one by one. You know, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. As he kissed the 18th woman, he was suddenly slugged by Dr. Harvey Rosenthal. He was a wealthy Riverside Drive dentist. As you can probably guess, number 18 was his wife. Diaz was quoted as saying, There was nothing wrong with it in the presence of others. And anyway, if the man wanted to fight, why didn't he call me outside? His injuries were minor, and he said that he would not sue. Quote, the entire unpleasant affair has been forgotten. If we had taken a trip to the Liberty National Bank at 3158 Roosevelt Road in Chicago, Illinois, on September 18th of 1949, we would have found bank floor manager William H. Oglesby sitting at a very unusual desk. What made the desk so unusual was that it was covered with more than 12,000 pennies, each one individually glued to it using 77 tubes of airplane cement. And there's a good reason why these pennies were there. About a year prior, he found a tiny horseshoe on the floor of the bank, so he picked it up and taped it to the top of his desk for good luck. Customers saw the horseshoe and started giving him pennies for additional good luck. The oldest coin was an 1835 half-cent piece, plus there were pennies from far-off lands including Russia, Poland, Mexico, Guatemala, and Palestine. The pennies were assembled on the front of the desk to form the letters L and B, which are the initials of the bank itself. Eventually, the desk was completely covered, but the pennies kept coming, so he set up a special account to hold the donated funds. He was quoted as saying, when I'm through here, the desk and the savings account will be turned over to the Jewish Old People's Home at 1648 South Albany Avenue. And our last tidbit for today is dated May 21st of 1967, when it was reported in the New York Times that Dr. Orlo K. Johns, a researcher at the Michigan State University, had stumbled upon a new way to control strawberry and picnic beetles. All that was needed to set up traps baited with two colors of automobile paint. In his tests, the strawberry beetles were attracted to an acrylic primer that's duplicolor DP-GM-3 and the picnic beetles to General Motors Midnight Blue that was DP-GM-44. Jans explained that if large numbers of beetles could be drawn to the traps sprayed with these colors, then the use of insecticides to treat crops could be greatly reduced. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one that you just heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And of course, in the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman, they are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do it for free through iTunes or just about any other podcast indexing service. Be sure to like the show on Facebook by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast. Lastly, and I've asked this many times before, if you've never done so, please be sure to write some positive comments on the show page on iTunes, and that will help steer more listeners this way. As always, I thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. 
And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.